You know, there's an expression that the best time to plant a tree was yesterday, <laughs> but the second best time is today. Yeah. You know, so just because you missed the boat doesn't mean you can't jump on now. Even if, you know, you're 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is, just because you haven't started doesn't mean you can't start now. Yep. following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up everyone and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about type 2 diabetes, which essentially means high blood sugar or hyperglycemia and insulin resistance. So we're going to go over the basic insulin resistance model as well as other factors that affect hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. And then we'll round it off with some complications of type 2 diabetes. And then from there, we'll also maybe talk about some just personal how we felt free from our diabetes this week as well. So, you know, insulin resistance, Grady, can be kind of complicated, and I know there's lots of different models out there, but there's definitely a basic understanding of insulin resistance. So can you kind of explain to us what that is? Yeah, so kind of the basic mechanism and pathway of how we get into this type 2 diabetes situation is um, just to kind of lay a foundation, the average person um, will eat or consume about 75 grams of carbs or essentially glucose per meal. And so when we ingest that 75 grams, we obviously don't want 75 grams of glucose in our bloodstream at one time. So we have this buffer, our liver, Mm. that helps um, convert that excess glucose into glycogen. So it converts it into glycogen so that it can be stored away. So that way we don't have 75 grams of glucose flying around the bloodstream. In reality, we really just have four grams of sugar in our bloodstream. So the liver is not just a filter, no. but it does other things as well. The liver is amazing. It okay. does so many different things. This is just one of the amazing things that it does. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So in a normal human being, a healthy human being, this is kind of where the process stops. We convert the excess glucose into glycogen, and we're good. We're ready to use that glycogen for glucose if we need it um, to burn energy. So if this carbohydrate intake continues and we have all this carbohydrates coming in those stores of glycogen fill up and now we no longer have room to store glycogen so what our liver does instead of leaking that sugar into the bloodstream now it's going to convert that excess glucose into fat primarily triglycerides and a little bit of cholesterol but primarily triglycerides and so in that process it takes a lot of energy to convert sugar into fats and so that's why after a meal or like we talked about last episode 
after Thanksgiving dinner, mm-hmm. you get very tired. Yes. Because you're converting that excess glucose into fat. Yes. And that part of that cycle is called the pyruvate citrate cycle. And you can look that up. In, it's funny because some people think this is a very new idea of how we convert fat or sugar into fat and things like that. And, and, you know, you can look in any biochemistry textbook and see how glucose actually goes into the cytoplasm of the cell or the inside of the cell and actually then turns into acetyl-CoA and then to fatty acids and then from there the triglycerides like you mentioned. And, you know, it's a very important mechanism to understand because it's powerful to understand. But like you were saying, you know, this is exactly what happens when your glycogen storages are already full and then once those are full, you just glucose just turns straight to fat. Yep. Then if we tax that system, so we're constantly barraging that liver with excess glucose, that liver gets overwhelmed. It can no longer keep, keep up by converting it into fat, and so our blood sugar rises. But we still have insulin that we can kick out, so we increase that insulin levels. But if we sustain that increased insulin levels over time, like we talked about on the first episode, the insulin is knocking on the door and the cell eventually gets tired of that insulin. I'm tired of answering the door. Leave me alone. And therefore, we get into a situation where we have insulin resistance. The receptors mm. no longer act the same or react the same to those insulin and it doesn't bring the sugar into the cells as efficiently. And so our blood sugar rises. Now, when we have blood sugar rising, we start developing those symptoms like craving sweets throughout the day. Um, even when you eat sweets, it doesn't relieve your sugar cravings because you're not getting those, that sugar into the cells. So your body's still screaming for sugar. Um, also, oh, that, that's, that's a really important. So if you crave sugar or if you continue to crave food and you eat it, but you still have those cravings, it's not like that makes so much sense. Yeah. So you're saying because the cells can't utilize the sugar that's already there and you eat it, you're still getting that craving because the cells can't use it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's a big... Hmm. I learned something. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Continue. And, you know, you'll have other symptoms like uh, frequent urination because your body's trying to flush that excess sugar out. And since you're urinating a lot, you'll have increased thirst, increased appetite, kind of like we just mentioned. Also difficulty losing weight and long-standing diabetes. You start getting, you know, the numbness, tingling in the extremities and all those things, visual disturbances that go along with that high, long-sustained uh, blood sugar. And then if we have that long, long-standing long high blood sugar, we start breaking down fat and making ketone bodies so that our cells can burn that for energy and use that for energy. Um, and those ketone bodies are very acidic, and we get into a situation where we develop diabetic ketoacidosis, which Mm. is a very kind of dangerous situation because that can then lead to coma or death. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that word keto or, you know, ketone, probably most people nowadays will recognize that from the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. And that is very different situation than what this is. So, you know, we'll talk more about, you know, that type of diet later. But in a nutshell, that approach such as like the ketogenic diet you're trying to restrict your carbohydrates Mm -hmm. um, and restrict the amount of sugar that you're utilizing so your body uses ketones as energy instead Mm -hmm. however in this diabetic ketoacidosis condition you actually have so much blood sugar and so much glucose in the cell but like you said the problem is 
that the insulin isn't working. So mm -hmm. all your cells know at that time is that you're not getting energy. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to then start to create these ketones even in a higher glucose situation and which was going to further change the acid or the acidosis part of your blood and becomes very, very dangerous. So, you know, ketones can be good in that diet situation, but in this case, a diabetic ketoacidosis, it's very different and can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this isn't the only thing that's involved with developing type 1 diabetes or um, the control of blood sugar and type 2 diabetes. Um, so, Garrett, what are some other things that affect high blood sugar? So, other things, you know, there are a lot of things that affect high blood sugar or that can cause high blood sugar. But, you know, to name four, to name a few, you know, we have things like inflammation, you know, stress, caffeine, unfortunately. Yeah. I know, I know. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kicking myself, too, because I, I drink caffeine. I drink coffee. Um, and then as well as genetics and the habits that you have. These things can all affect your blood sugar levels. Now, that first thing, inflammation. We've used that word a couple of times in this podcast, and we'll probably use it more than a couple of times after this. But... Grady, what do you think, when I say the word inflammation, and when you hear that word, what is one or two words that come to your mind if you just had to short, short it? I think most people would agree inflammation is bad. Yes. Yep. Yep. 100%. Inflammation is not a good thing in a chronic situation. So in general, why it's bad, you know, because we have to understand inflammation before it's in a chronic setting. So inflammation is the immune response, you know, you have your immune system that we think about when you get sick and things like that. But it's an immune response of your body trying to say, hey, we need to take care of this. So in that case of being sick, you have an immune response to take care of that bacteria or take care of that virus. And it's almost like a phone call the immune system is sending out to the body saying, hey, we need to put out this fire. You know, so when I hear the word inflammation, flame, I think of fire. There's a fire going on somewhere in the body. Yeah, that's a very good way to put that. And so inflammation, like I said, can actually be a good thing in that case of that sickness. Or, you know, you sprain your ankle, you know, playing basketball or something. That swelling is actually an inflammatory process. And you actually need that inflammatory process to heal. So inflammation can actually be a good thing in that acute setting because that immune response is going to help clear the debris, clear the broken tissue, help recruit more immune cells to repair that tissue and actually get you on the road to healing. So inflammation in that acute setting, what it was designed for is actually a very good thing. So why we think it's bad and inflammation is bad is when it's in that chronic setting and chronic just means over extended period of time. You know, people define chronic differently in different situations, but just think chronic as a long period of time. So the how chronic inflammation affects blood sugar is actually very complex. And I know we've had drier episodes before. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think to summarize, I'm going to instead try to summarize what, what this is. And, you know, if you do want to read some more in-depth explanation of these mechanisms, there's going to be, you know, there's two review articles from 2018 that I, I really like um, that I'm sure we'll put in the show notes about how inflammation affects insulin action and insulin resistance specifically. But to kind of summarize everything, you know, you can think about it as, as this is when a mechanism is broken. So an example of a mechanism being broken would be in the case of almost type one diabetes or just autoimmunity. Something that normally happens is faulty. 
for whatever reason, and the reasons don't matter. But that broken system is going to cause your immune system to call out that signal and say, hey, something's broken, we need to fix it. So when a system is broken in the body, when there's excess visceral fat, because there's a difference between subcutaneous fat and visceral fat. And I think normally when people think of a type 2 diabetic, you know, they're going to think of somebody who is larger in weight. And this can be true, you know, um, and fat is very inflammatory, but the worst kind of fat is that visceral fat Mm -hmm. and the fat around the organs. Yeah, what you call skinny fat. Right, right. They look skinny, but they have some fat in their... Right, it's like you put your hand on them and you're like, wow, this is pretty pretty solid. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what that visceral fat is. And this visceral fat is a lot more metabolically active and then will then cause much more immune response as well. And so that visceral fat is going to cause more of an inflammatory signal as well, that immune system saying, hey, something's going on here. And like I said, when you're sick or if you're chronically sick, some people have chronic illnesses, when your digestion is altered, when your blood sugar spikes high, you know, these types of mechanisms, whenever there's something awry, or there's going to be inflammation, and that's just the natural thing the body does. But when it happens for so long, it's going to play a large part in that insulin resistance. And you try to mitigate your inflammation status as much as possible. And the less inflamed you are, the easier it's going to be to control those blood sugar numbers. And your body can regulate that insulin resistance and that normal insulin signaling pathway. But um, on top of chronic inflammation chronic stress goes hand in hand and nobody in this country is stressed (laughs) there's not a single kid or child or adult or worker or what nobody's stressed in this country or (laughs) stress-free rather or yeah okay maybe that that's more accurate statement um, (laughs) instead of me trying to be sarcastic (laughs) so what stress is is you know you've some people might have heard of stress hormone called cortisol and how that gets released is through the sympathetic nervous system And so when I say the sympathetic nervous system, that is a branch of your autonomic nervous system. And when your autonomic nervous system is the part of your nervous system that runs everything in the background. So you don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to think about your heart beating. You don't have to think about your stomach digesting. These are all run through the autonomic nervous system. And this autonomic nervous system has three branches. You have your sympathetic, your parasympathetic system, and then your enteric nervous system. And that's essentially the branch that goes to your gut. And I'm sure we'll talk about the um, brain-gut axis more in detail later. But anyway, so these branches of the autonomic system, essentially the sympathetic nervous system is responsible, you know, classically for the term fight or flight, you know, so stress. When you have to fight a bear or you have to run away from a bear. And the parasympathetic system is responsible for rest and digest. So when you have chronic stress, you don't turn on your parasympathetic nervous system. You're not resting. And that is when you start to repair. I mean, that's why we go to bed at night. We are trying to repair the damages. We're trying to repair everything that happened throughout the day. It's important to rest. But if we're chronically stressed, our sympathetic system is always on. And what that's going to do is, in terms of our blood and our blood sugar, is that's going to send signals down to our adrenal glands. Now, our adrenal glands also called our super renal glands, sit on top of our kidneys, and they are responsible for a lot of things. They kind of get the the butt end of a lot of people's mechanisms. Yeah, they're the scapegoat. For sure, they're a scapegoat, um, and, you know, with a lot of other processes, but 
essentially their job is to respond. And so within the cortex of the adrenals, part of those tissues within the cortex on the outside secrete cortisol, as well as then the medulla or the inside of those adrenals secrete epinephrine and norepinephrine. And what norepinephrine and epinephrine are is essentially adrenaline. Not essentially, it is adrenaline. And so what cortisol is going to do is that is the stress hormone. That is the hormone that when you are sick, it's going to be active and it's going to actually dampen your immune system. So temporarily kind of calm down your immune system so you can get through whatever you have to do. Its whole purpose is to get you through this moment right now. The bear is chasing me now. I don't need to sneeze. You know, I don't know why I said sneeze. That was weird. Um, I, you know, I don't need a rest. I need to run. So it's going to dampen my immune system. It also can raise your blood sugar. And so why would it want to raise your blood sugar? Well, if you're running away from a bear, you want to get that. Yeah. You want to get energy. You need some energy. So it's going to get some of that glucose that's stored in your liver into the blood. And then it's going to then try to go to the muscles. So innately, it just tries to prepare yourself to fight that bear. Now your adrenaline does something similar and it's going to be more of a stimulant. So cortisol is kind of more of a circulatory type of hormone and that adrenaline is acts in similar ways and but through different tissues. And adrenaline and epinephrine can also raise your blood sugar as well when it acts on the liver. Now when epinephrine works on your skeletal muscle, it's not going to raise your blood sugar, but it doesn't necessarily need more sugar because it's just you have glycogen in your muscles as well. And that's just going to kind of have your ability to, again, fight that bear. So there's already sugar in your muscles that it's just going to use. Now, again, the problem is chronic stress. So this is all fine when we are running away from the bear or fighting the bear. I don't mean if you want to fight a bear. bear. (laughs) Of course you will (laughs) fight the bear. I'm going to run. That's why I train. (laughs) That's why I run. Um, But when you're chronically stressed, this is happening all the time. And because literally though, one of the direct impacts of these hormones is to raise your blood sugar. If you're chronically stressed, it's going to just be an uphill battle. You know, you're going to be trying to go downhill, but in reality, the mountain is just going up and it's just going to be really hard to control your sugar if you're chronically stressed. Mm-hmm. So you throw that, those mechanisms on top of the inflammation and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a hard time to battle that. On top of the diet that we just talked about too. Exactly. Um, yeah. It makes it very, very tough to be successful with that. And with your diet, so then you're stressed. You can't, you're having a hard time sleeping because you're not going parasympathetic. You're not resting and digesting. You know, your diet's not the best and you got all this inflammation. And then because you're tired, then you drink coffee <laughs> and you go to the caffeine. And because you're preparing for that presentation at work, you are trying to make a deadline. You're studying for that exam, whatever it might be. You know, you end up having that caffeine. And unfortunately, it's, it is what it is. Ca- caffeine will negatively impact your insulin sensitivity. Um, and it's been shown in particular in acute settings. So in reality, the data for the long-term settings and the, how it affects you long-term is not clear, but we know acutely it's going to dampen your insulin sensitivity. So essentially how this happens is that normally when hormones like insulin affect certain receptors, it's going to create downstream effects. And in those downstream effects, something called cyclical AMP is going to be created. It's a powerful secondary messenger. And so cyclical AMP goes in other parts within the cell 
and that's going to just turn other processes on within that cell and which that's a normal thing. However, eventually those processes need to be turned off. And so cyclical AMP needs to be converted to AMP. And how you convert that is through an enzyme called phosphodiesterase. You know, it's kind of like a general name is phosphodiesterase. And what caffeine does is it inhibits phosphodiesterase. And so cyclical AMP never gets converted to AMP. So in this explanation, think of once this hormone affects a receptor and cyclical AMP is activated, it's like the on switch to turn everything else in the cell on. But when you can't turn the cell off, it's just going to keep running and running and running and running, even that there's no energy. But Mm. the signal isn't telling it. So the light switch never goes off. Uh. So this is why caffeine can make you feel energized without, like, actually raising your blood sugar if you just had caffeine directly. Because it's not giving you energy. It's not giving you ATP. It's not giving you glucose. All it's doing is just making that cell work but fatiguing the cell. It's almost like um, <laughs> I've seen a, a, a meme or a picture of a like a completely totaled car <laughs> at, a, at a gas station, and it's just puts the you try to put the gas hose in the car. And it's like this is what caffeine's trying to do to my body, yeah. you know, at this point. Oh, and, I love that. That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> and it's you know you try to fill up the car, but the car is totaled anyways, yeah. right? Yeah, I I always tell patients or I tell people in general, I'm like. It's just fake energy. Mm-hmm. So if you need fake energy, mm-hmm. that's what people go to. Exactly. And so, um, and if unfortunately you don't believe me, there's a meta-analysis from 2016, which we'll put in the show notes, showing of, it was only seven randomized controlled trials, but it was still randomized controlled trials regardless, and how they all agreed that caffeine acutely dampens your insulin sensitivity and increases your insulin resistance. So by always letting that cell run, not giving it a break, you know, you're going to affect your ability for that insulin to activate that GLUT4 pathway, which we've talked about before, and get glucose in the cell. So you do that caffeine on top of the inflammation, on top of your stress, on top of your diet, on top of everything else, and it adds for a really hard time to then actually get stable blood sugar. And you can't quench your cravings. You know, Snickers did a really smart thing with their <laughs> with their whole campaign. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole hangry thing, yeah. that's a totally just further promotes more of the same thing. Mm. Like if you're hangry and you grab a Snickers, you're going to get hangry again because yeah. your blood sugar is, <laughs> you're not going to get craved from it. So they were really smart with their ad campaign in oh, terms yeah. of that. But regardless, the last thing that can affect your, or not the last thing, but the last thing I'm going to talk about is your genetics and habits. You know, it is true that there are ge- genetics do play a role in type two diabetes. You know, for example, African-Americans and those of Hispanic culture Um, are definitely more likely to get type 2 diabetes. We see those in those population way more. However, just because your parent had type 2 diabetes doesn't mean you're going to have type 2 diabetes. The thing that you would inherit more from your parents is in your genetics in this situation, but their habits. Mm -hmm. And how you grew up can impact you and your life so much more than just your genes in general. You know, this world of epigenetics is way more powerful than just genetics. And just because your dad had type 2 diabetes doesn't mean you're going to. Just because your, you know, your aunt had type 2 diabetes doesn't mean you're going yeah. to. Yeah, that always, that's something that really bursts my beta cells mm. is people feeling like or telling me that their parent or somebody or most of their family has type 2 diabetes, so I'll, I'll probably get it. 
and it's like my mindset is totally different and it may just because be because i know more and i've read more about epigenetics and things like that but my mindset is i have the power to affect my destiny yes absolutely and the things that i do today are going to set me up for success um, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of, you can then get into lots of interesting conversations about social economics and then the foods that are available to certain people and type two diabetes and things like that. And that all is extremely important in terms of battling type two diabetes and this chronic hyperglycemia and this chronic stress from, you know, such a giant level. Um, Like I know there's other countries that have put taxes on sugar campaigns and soda campaigns oh, wow, and cereal cool. campaigns. But, and just because you grew up eating frosted flakes with a extra bunch of like yeah. two cups of sugar yeah. or whatever, you know, doesn't mean you have to continue having that just because you grew up having 10 biscuits, you know, I'm, I'm obviously exam, you know, exaggerating, but yeah. just cause you grew up a certain way eating does, and drinking things doesn't mean you have to do those same things. Like yep. you said, you have the power and you know, to control your health and your life. And when we really realize that, um, and we're able to change our habits, um, and change what we do now, you know, it's, it's an amazing what we can do. And there's an expression, you know, in terms of making those changes and making those habits, you know, there's an expression that the best time to plant a tree was yesterday, <laughs> but the second best time is today, Yeah. you know? So just because you missed the boat doesn't mean you can't jump on now, even if you know, you're 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is, just because you haven't started doesn't mean you can't start now. Yep. And I think um, all these things that affect hyperglycemia and insulin resistance, um, especially since, you know, it's such a so rampant in our society, it's really, it's one of the most preventable conditions. I don't even want to call it a disease because if you think of it's a disease, you have it for life. And we obviously just talked about how that's not, you know, necessarily true. So, um, so those are kind of the things or I think are impactful of hyperglycemia. Yeah. Yeah. So going off of that, I'm going to talk about some of the complications that are involved with high blood sugar, especially for a long period of time, because I think most people know and are familiarized with diabetes and how destructive it can be because Mm -hmm. they've either watched a family member or a friend that has gone through and dealt with type 2 diabetes for a long time, and they watch them in the later parts of their life suffer from various other conditions. And so I think the biggest thing that that affects, that high blood sugar affects, is your circulation. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that being is because I, to start off, I kind of want to set a, or give you an analogy because if you think, if you think back to a time where somebody has spilt a sugary drink on the floor mm-hmm. and then you don't even see it and you walk right through it and then for the rest of the day, just you can, your shoe is just sticking to the floor, you're going yeah. all over the place and it's annoying. Is because sugar is very sticky, and that's the same scenario inside the body. And you, what happens when you have a lot of sugar is that sugar sticks to things. And when it sticks to things, we start calling those things advanced glycation in products, just basically meaning that those products are stuck with sugar. They're caked in sugar. Mm. And in the circu- circulatory system, 
especially when we're talking about the very small vessels, the capillaries at the very ends of the in, inside the tissues, those tubes become smaller because you have all that sugar in there and it's sticking everywhere. And so that's where you start getting into a scenario where you have decreased circulation um, to various things like the nerve endings in your fingers and toes, um, your eyes, your kidneys, your heart, your brain. Mm. Those things are very affected by that decrease in circulation. So is that decrease in circulation in those ages, those advanced glycolytic end products, is that a kind of part of the the mechanism of neuropathy? Because I know that's a big issue that people talk about Mm -hmm. both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but a lot with type 2 diabetes is that neuropathy. Yes, yeah, and the nerves are what are causing that neuropathy, Um, and the decrease in circulation is essentially not an environment where those nerves can be healthy, and so they start to kind of degrade, Mm. and therefore you get the decreased in sensation gotcha okay um other systems that are affected are pretty much every system in the body because sugar is very important because that's where you get your energy from absolutely Um, but we talked about liver before and the mechanism of how how high blood sugar comes about but if we um, look at the liver and how it's affected by high blood sugar over time we talked about how the liver converts excess sugar into fat and we get into a situation where the liver is then encased in fat Mm. and we get fatty liver disease and we think about fatty liver disease in the context of alcoholism yep but when we have high blood sugar for a long period of time we get into that same scenario and so when i look at a a cadaver who was an alcoholic and I look at a cadaver who had long-standing type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. I can't really tell a difference between their liver. Gotcha. Because it's so, that destructive. So just because it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic, it doesn't matter, but the liver is still going to be have that mm-hmm. fat on it. Yep. I see. And like we talked about, the liver does a ton of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it does a lot of your detoxification. Mm-hmm. So if you can't detoxify as well, then you're going to suffer. We talked about blood sugar regulation it regulates hormones and your immune system and your lymphatic. A lot of things go through the liver. And so if the liver is not working well, you're probably not going to be very happy. Mm. Some other things that are maybe more important for some people is the adrenals and sex hormones. Mm. So we talked about how the adrenals kick out cortisol, but cortisol is along the pathway, um, the same pathway as sex hormones. So if we're kicking out cortisol all the time, we don't have as much materials to then make sex hormones. So if, in other words, if cortisol did not leave the adrenals and stayed in there, it would help facilitate more sex hormones. Yes, because you, the supplies that you have to make cortisol are the same supplies that you need to make the sex hormones. Oh, okay. And so if you're using all those supplies to make cortisol, then your sex hormones suffer. And therefore, you have decreased libido Mm. um, and decreased sex drive, which is very important to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So that can be a very good motivator for some people to get back on track. Sure. 
Um, another thing is thyroid hormone and how that's affected by blood sugar. Um, blood sugar can affect how thyroid hormone is converted into the active form, and therefore it can affect your metabolism because thyroid hormone primarily deals with your metabolism and how you burn energy. Hmm. And um, the other, the last thing which we talk about a lot is inflammation. Mm. So high blood sugar leads to inflammation, right? And inflammation leads to high blood sugar. So it's a cyclical Vicious thing. Cycle. And we'll talk about inflammation in probably every podcast because mm. inflammation has a lot to do with everything. But um, those are kind of the primary things that we talk about when we talk about complications of high blood sugar. Can you think of anything that? hyperglycemia and you know blood sugar doesn't affect not off the top of my head honestly i don't I've, i'd be very surprised if i don't yeah i can't think of anything either yeah. it's just so impactful you yeah. know it's such a tightly regulated response and there's so many things that are chronic society then leads to it affecting mm-hmm. um so it's just so important even if you know right now there's 30 million diabetics in the united states but there's 90 something million pre-diabetics or those that much, if not more, you know, those who fall into the category of um, dysglycemic or just, you Mm -hmm. know, dysregulation or not regulation of their blood sugar. And that's where these people fall under is there's so much chronic things happening in our world that's affecting this. And, you know, there's so many people that are at risk for this, that it's such a important thing to get stabilized before you even try to do anything else with the body. Just blood sugar is just, Boom. It's got to get fixed. Yep. Right away. Don't mess around with it. Mm-hmm. So, Garrett, mm. we talked about the complications of type 2 diabetes, how type 2 diabetes comes about, and some of the things that affect hyperglycemia. Um, I feel really good about this podcast. I hope everybody learned a lot about it. But before we conclude, I want to ask you, what was something, an event, um, or a situation in this past week or so that you felt made you feel free from diabetes? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to, you know, not just say like what was challenging and then you, what you overcame, but just in general, like what, what made you just feel like a, a normal person or yeah. like, wow, that was just executed perfectly in terms of being diabetic. And for me this week, it actually just happened, you know, last night, myself and you and you know another friend we ended up doing a three-hour workout <laughs> in the gym it which was epic. It, w- it was pretty good um i can't say that i've actually lifted that much for that long uh, we had a couple you know we had like one break in between kind of refuel um between sessions or whatever but having such a long workout especially for me uh when i lift my blood sugar tends to go up a bit you know and i've now done so much work on understanding my blood sugar that I was able to use my pump in a way that I just was able to keep stable the whole entire time. That's awesome. And just for the whole three hours, uh, you know, I was between 100 and 120 the whole time. That's great. And uh, it was it was a good feeling. Um, and then to come back and be able to eat and just still stay stable with the food I had afterwards and throughout the night, you know, waking up in the morning, like, yeah, that, that worked well. And um, to know that I can do those things. Um, not many people would want to work out for three hours straight in the gym <laughs> and do bench, deadlift, squat, and all the other workouts at the same yeah. same time. And uh, But, you know, that was a lot of fun. And to be able to do that and not feel restricted and not only to not do it 
like I like I did in squatting the other time this week, and <laughs> and with super high blood sugar, it felt good just to be able to do that. Yeah, and just um, you know, feel normal. But yeah. what about you? Did you have any moment that you felt just free? Yeah, I, not necessarily. Well, a little bit of freedom, uh, but also just like a huge sense of that was awesome. Mm. So I tend to restrict myself in the evenings as far as what I eat and how much I eat. I try to make sure to either eat fairly early on in the evening and make sure I don't eat very late. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do eat somewhat later, I want to make sure that it's very light because it makes my blood sugars much more um, stable um, through the night and mm-hmm. it keeps my blood sugars good. And on Monday night, I actually got so hungry late into the evening that I just broke down. I'm like, I need to eat something. Otherwise, I'm just not going to fall asleep because I was just so hungry. So I ate something. I ate like a fairly substantial meal. And so I changed my basal rates through the night because I knew I was going to be higher from that. And I woke up the next morning and I was sitting pretty good. I don't know the number exactly, but I, I was very happy with it. And then since I ate so late at night, I wasn't hungry at all because I had a pretty big meal. So I ended up just fasting and going to work and working on a few patients. Hmm. And my practice is set up to where I'm pretty active with my patients and do a lot of movement and yes. and uh, muscle work and stuff like that. So the worry would be that I would drop low okay. if I didn't eat. Hmm. And I didn't much worry about it too much. And like I said, I was, wasn't hungry. So I'm like, oh, I'll just fast to it. And I kept checking my blood sugar in between patients. It was fine. And everything was good. And I I was somewhat surprised by it because I expected to start dropping low because I hadn't eaten. But the diabetic gods were on my side <laughs> and got through it successfully. So I'm happy about it. Awesome. No, that's great. Um, especially since you don't do that scenario very often. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's always a good feeling when you come out on top and just be like, man, boom. Done. Yep. Awesome. Well, we talked a lot about the management of type 2 diabetes, but next time we're going to talk about, you know, what people can do to help better control their blood sugar in those situations. So I appreciate everybody listening, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. See you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.